So as I've watched the events unfold in Ukraine over the last couple of weeks, there have been a lot of different emotions that I have experienced, and I'm sure you've been the same way. I've been angry at Vladimir Putin for uh, wrecking and in many cases ending the lives of so many innocent people. I've been frustrated by my inability to understand how someone thinks and how you uh, legitimize something like that. I uh, felt grief and sadness uh, for the incredible losses that the Ukrainian people have endured and especially the thing that really grabs my heart is seeing the families being torn apart. And I know you've seen the same photos and images I have of, you know, people on trains and children reaching a hand out to the father that's left behind and all that. And that's just heart-wrenching kinds of, of images. Um, there was one picture that I came across this week that, that I want us to go ahead and put up on the screen that really did arrest my attention. And, and it's this mom, you know, holding a child in one hand holding a rifle in the other. And that just kind of sums up um, you know, the, the, what people are dealing with. And there was, there was a lady that apparently is an author and, and blogs a lot uh, on Facebook and other areas, and her name is Heather. I don't know anything about her other than this. I just want to quote from some of what she, this is what she wrote to go with that photo. She said, I see the mothers holding her child's hand on one side, and a gun made for a soldier on the other. I see the mothers walking down roads unknown to her, carrying her children, her belongings, and her worries all at the very same time. I see the mothers sitting on the floor of hospital basements, whether it's giving birth to her first child, tending to her precious newborn, or sitting at the bedside of her unwell children. I see the mothers running away to a life unknown in hopes of solace and safety while having no choice but to leave behind pieces of her heart in the shape of husbands, fathers, brothers, even sons. I see the mothers having no choice but to sit in the chaos of train stations, bus stops, and roadsides during nap time and meal time and bedtime. I see the mothers reading bedtime stories in dark, dreary basements for the sake of normalcy while shelling and missiles outside their walls scream anything but normal. I see the mothers still loving on their children and still showing up for their children, but now to a life they never imagined in their scariest, wildest dreams. I see the mothers. I see them silently praying, loudly loving, unapologetically surviving. I see them still being mom. I see the mothers. Hearing that, doesn't that just stir all kinds of emotions in you? And, um, you know, there's, there's one emotion that all of this and watching all these events unfold, there's one that has taken me by surprise a little bit, and that is that there's a part of me that feels inspired by what I see. I'm inspired by the courage of, in many cases, mothers who have had to take their children um, to places that they don't know. I'm inspired by the courage of the men who have sent their families away, who have returned back to their countries, and who most of them are completely untrained militarily and who are doing a phenomenal job of defending their country. Uh, I've been in, inspired by Vladimir Zelensky, the president there in Ukraine, as he has refused to 
you know, to, to, to cater, and, and he's just inspired people to come along and, and join in the fight and, and to be a part in ways that they can. I mean, there's just something about watching people, real-life people, live out courage that inspires us, right? And today, as we continue on talking about heroes of the faith, we're going to look at one of those heroes, a woman by the name of Esther, who inspires courage. This is someone who demonstrated incredible courage. And I want to catch us up a little bit on her story. Many of you may be familiar with the story behind Esther, but just to kind of catch us up a little bit, uh, this the, the, the book takes place during the reign of a king by the name of Ashuerus, more commonly referred to as Xerxes. He was the ruler of the Persian Empire, which at that time was the largest empire to date. It covered what we now call Turkey, Iraq, Iran, Pakistan, Jordan, Lebanon, Israel, and parts of Egypt, Sudan, Libya, and Arabia. Now, it's important for us to understand that because it gives us a, a, a mental image of just how powerful this kingdom was and therefore how powerful the king of Persia was. But unfortunately for him, he wasn't powerful enough to control his queen, Vashti. Because they had gotten together and after one of their military conquests and they were celebrating and for seven days, uh, and I quote, this is what the scripture says, the royal wine was abundant in keeping with the king's liberality. For seven days, they just sat around and drank wine. That's all they did. And as you might imagine, there are some bad decisions that are made when you do nothing but drink wine for seven days. And one of those bad decisions that was made was the king said, hey, why don't we bring my queen in here so we can all just stare at her beauty. We'll have her put on her royal crown and come in and display herself for us. And so they sent for the queen and she said, I'm not going. Now, it's hard to blame her, ladies. How would you like to be put on display in front of a bunch of drunk aristocrats? Probably not, right? And so you can understand why she refused to go and appear before them. But in that day, a queen could not refuse an order from her king. For that matter, no woman could refuse an order from her husband. And so now the king is faced with this dilemma of, okay, what am I going to do? We're in uncharted territory. How am I going to respond? So he asked for advice from his advisors in verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 16 of Esther. Let me start reading there. It says, Then Mimikan replied in the presence of the king and the nobles, Queen Vashti has done wrong not only against the king, but also against all the nobles and the peoples of the province of King Xerxes. For the queen's conduct will become known to all the women so that they will despise their husbands and say, King Xerxes commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, but she would not come. This very day, the Persian and Median women of the nobility who have heard about the queen's conduct will respond to all the king's nobles in the same way. There will be no end of disrespect and discord. Therefore, if it pleases the king... 
Let him issue a royal decree and let it be written in the laws of Persia and Media, which cannot be repealed, that Vashti is never again to enter the presence of King Xerxes. Also let the king give her royal position to someone else who is better than she. Then when the king's edict is proclaimed throughout the vast realm, all the women will respect their husbands from the least to the greatest. So that's the plan. And you can see the motivation. They're very clear is we don't want to lose control here. We don't want our wives to treat us this way. Therefore, we need to nip this in the bud right now. But he gives advice and says, let's have someone replace her. And so they go through a search and, and we'll fast forward through that a little bit. And we'll just say that they ended up uh, selecting a young woman and uh, her name was Hadassah, but she also went by Esther. Esther was of Jewish origin. And uh, at this time, the Jews who lived in Susa that were part of this Persian empire were there because they had been carried away when the Persians conquered Jerusalem. They carried uh, many of them into exile. And so you can imagine that being a Jew in this culture was, was not a good thing, right? They were not looked on with favor. And so um, Esther's cousin by the name of Mordecai, who actually had become like a father to her, her parents both died when she was young, and Mordecai raised her as his own, and he forbade her to tell what her background was, what her nationality was. And so Esther becomes queen, but the king doesn't know that she's a Jew. Okay? Now, so we've got so far three major characters. We have King Xerxes, we have Mordecai, and we have Esther. Now enter a fourth major character into the story, and that is a guy by the name of Haman. Haman was the right-hand man of the king. He was the one that he elevated above everyone else. And uh, as a result, one of the ways that he was honored was that when, wherever Haman went, people were to bow before him as a sign of honor and respect. And everyone did, except Mordecai. And when Haman would come into the presence of Mordecai, Mordecai refused to bow before him, and it absolutely infuriated Haman. Who is this Jew who refuses to bow in my presence? Now, the scripture doesn't go into specifics of why he refused to bow, but I think we can figure it out pretty easily, right? It's the same reason that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refused to bow down before the 90-foot statue of King Nebuchadnezzar. It's, it's because what's the first of the Ten Commandments? You shall have no other God before me. And for a Jew to bow down was a sign of worship. And so Mordecai says, no, I'm not going to do that. And he had the courage to stand up. We don't know if any other Jews were not told that there were any others who did the same thing. But we know that Mordecai did. He had that courage not to bow before Haman. And then I want you to listen to just how obsessed Haman became with exacting revenge on Mordecai. Esther 3 verses 5 and 6. When Haman saw that Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor, he was enraged. Yet having learned who Mordecai's people were, he scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. Now again, let me remind you how large that kingdom was. So the plan is throughout this entire massive kingdom, we are going to get rid of and annihilate every single Jew. Man, woman, child, everybody. All of them will be killed. 
That's his plan. And he brings his plan before the king. And on the same kind of a pretext, by the way, uh, going back to Daniel, we talked about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Kind of the same thing of, oh, well, this, this person, this is not good for you, king, because they're not willing to bow down before you. And this is a problem. And so the king listens and says, yeah, I think that is a problem. Now, here's the, the, the interesting part of this. And this just shows you how much Haman was consumed by his anger toward Mordecai. He offered to pay 10,000 talents of silver from his own personal treasury to pay for this, this whole process of having the Jews annihilated. Now, if you're wondering how much that is, 10,000 talents is the equivalent of 375 tons of silver. Now, that's hard for us to wrap our minds around. And, and for those curious minds, if you want to know in today's prices, what that would equate to, just a little under $300 million is what that would equate to. Now, back then, it wouldn't have been that much value because there was more, you know, it wasn't quite as rare back then as it is now. But still, let's just say this is a load of cash. This is a lot of money that Haman is willing to. To, to spend in order to get revenge. Now, I don't want to chase this rabbit trail very far, but just quickly, let me point out the fact that when we become consumed by hatred toward another person, it's amazing what that does to completely dominate our thinking and, and just you know, cause us to make horrible decisions. And he, was, he, he just couldn't focus on anything else. And he was willing to spend so much of his own money, if necessary, in order to take revenge upon not just Mordecai, but all of the Jewish people. That's why when we talked, what was it, two, three weeks ago, whenever it was, not too long ago, we talked about forgiveness and how important that is. And I would come back and just remind us and remind you, if you're holding on toward, to, to some type of animosity towards somebody else, you've got to let that go and do it now. Because, man, that, that'll eat us up, and that, that, that's, that's difficult. So, but, but Haman is just consumed by this, and so he, he gets permission from the king. The king says, don't worry about it. You don't have to pay for it yourself. And uh, so they decide, when is this going to happen? And he casts lots to see when will be the day that they will set aside for the Jews to be annihilated. And this is fascinating as well, because we're told that it's the first month of the year. They cast the lots. The first one for the day falls on the 13th. So it'll be on the 13th of some month. And then they cast lots for the month. And you want to guess which month it lands to. Now, remember, we're in the first month of the year. The month is month 12. And what we see here is the God of heaven meddling in this process. And giving as, as much time as possibly uh, could be given in order for the people to get prepared. Uh, but nevertheless, they, they put this edict out, they publish it, and it says that on this day, all the people are to kill all the Jews. They can take their property and belongings and everything for themselves. And, and Mordecai, when he sees this edict, he just goes into to mourning, and he puts on sackcloth, and he, he just mourns and wails loudly. Well, Esther doesn't know what has taken place at this point. And she hears that something is wrong with Mordecai, and she sends to find out why, and then she learns what's going on. And she learns about this new edict. And this is where it gets really interesting. And this is where Esther has to decide to be very, very courageous. Now let's pick it up in Esther chapter 4, verse 9. Hathak went back and reported to Esther what Mordecai had said. That's about the, the, the edict and what had taken place. 
Then she instructed him to say to Mordecai, All the king's officials and the people and all the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law, that they be put to death, unless the king extends the gold scepter to them and spares their lives. But thirty days have passed since I was called to go to the king. So you see Esther's dilemma, right? Mordecai says, you've got to go to the king. You've got to speak to him on our behalf. It's, 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 it's what needs to be done in order to save our people. But Esther says, you can't do that. You can't just show up unsummoned. And then she points out the fact. She says, furthermore, it's been an entire month since she's been called in. She hasn't seen the king in a month. And now she's going to show up unsummoned and, and, and she's afraid. And I read this, I'm like, yeah, I can understand why. Now, does Esther's fear here indicate a lack of faith in God? Does it indicate some type of weakness in her? Because after all, people who are courageous never get scared, right? Wrong. Courage doesn't mean that we don't get afraid. It just means that we're not crippled by it. It reminds me of a phrase that I heard in a sermon. This is years and years ago. I remember uh, a preacher talking about this, and, and he used this phrase. He said, courage is not the lack of fear. It's the presence of obedience. Let me say that again. Courage is not the lack of fear. It's the presence of obedience. It means that, that we follow God's direction anyway, even when we're scared. If you were to ask the Ukrainian people right now, are you scared? If they're being honest, the answer is yes. How would you not be? And yet they continue on, right? They continue doing what they need to do in order to defend their country and protect their families and those kinds of things. So Esther is afraid, but then we continue reading. Mordecai's response, verse 12. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer do not think that because you're in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai, Go, gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my attendants will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went away and carried out all of Esther's instructions. Now, Based on Esther's response here, I, I want us to, to move fairly quickly through a few things. Just points that, that, that we can learn from her when it comes to demonstrating courage. Because Mordecai points out the fact in verse 14 that if you don't go, deliverance is going to come from somewhere. But God has put you in this position for this very reason. In other words, Esther, view your obstacle as an opportunity. I mean, that, that's our first big takeaway today. And I, I want to explain what I mean by that because that kind of sounds like something you could hear at a self-help conference, right? 
Let me be very specific. What I mean by viewing an obstacle as an opportunity, I mean as an opportunity for God to step into a really difficult situation and do something significant. That's what Mordecai is, is telling Esther. The fact that, that, that we find ourselves in this place, God has put you there at this specific time for that very reason. It's not a coincidence. You know, Esther did not become queen because of her beauty or her kindness. I mean, that may have been the thing that the king noticed. But she became queen because God wanted her in that position for this very, very reason that she would be there to act on behalf of his people. What she needed was a change in perspective of how she viewed things. Now, let's just be honest and, and acknowledge that I don't think when all this happened that neither Mordecai nor Esther said, Yay, an opportunity for God to work. Because that's usually not how we respond, right? When something really difficult comes our way. And I don't think we need to acknowledge that. But he is, is attempting to shift her focus a little bit and help her to see things a little bit differently. It, you know, the, the image that came to mind for me, anybody ever had night vision goggles? You know, I, I've never actually had them. You see the pictures, right? Or the videos of things and you see what it looks like. The way that works is it, it, it's, it takes infrared, a little bit of infrared light, and somehow converts it into an image. And so if you are wearing these night vision goggles, you're able to see things in the darkness that are there, but that are not visible to the naked eye. You need some help in order to see it, right? I think what, what Mordecai is doing, what we need for God to do for us, is to give us the ability in the darkest times to see what's actually there, but we just we aren't able to perceive it with our own set of eyes, right? We need some, some spiritual vision. We need some help in order to be able to see things. Now, that's not to belittle the, the dark times that we go through because darkness is scary. And I certainly don't want to belittle the situation that Esther is in because... She is in very real danger here. When she appears before the king, there is a, a real possibility, maybe even a high likelihood, that she's going to be put to death. And yet, Mordecai says, but you need to view this from a different perspective. God has put you there for this very reason. Anybody find yourself in a place of darkness right now? You find yourself... Uh, dealing with things that seem overwhelming, maybe it's loneliness. Could it be that, that changing our perspective a little bit might, might help us to see things differently during a, a period of loneliness, which is very real, it is very painful? Could that also be an opportunity to get to know God more intimately than we might have ever thought possible? If you're going through some type of financial struggle or financial loss and there's fear associated with that and uncertainty about the future, could it be that that's also an opportunity for God to step in and show himself as the provider? Could it be an opportunity to, to grow in your faith as a result of that? If you are mourning the loss of something or someone in your life? Could it be that that really is also an opportunity to get to know the great comforter 
in ways that, that we never would have otherwise. See, when we go through dark times, it, we want to minimize the pain of the darkness. But we also can view those from a different perspective and see those obstacles as truly an opportunity for God to do something. And, and that's what Esther needed to do. Um, you know, can I shoot straight for a minute here when it comes to this kind of thing without, I, I hope this doesn't come across sounding um, harsh or, or, or judgmental in any way, but um, I think one of the difficulties we face as believers is we think it's God's job to keep us comfortable all the time. You know, we, we think that, that we bought into this lie that God's job is to keep me safe. And that God's job is to make sure that I'm comfortable and that I don't go through any pain. Can I just tell you that's a lie? God's job is to change us and to transform us into the image of Christ. That's, that's what he does. And frankly, as the church, as the people of God, especially in this part of the world, I think we become way too soft. And our expectations of, you know, what we should have to endure are, are, are way too low. I think we need to, to change our perspective. We need to view those difficult times, not to minimize the pain, but to say those are opportunities for God to do something and to change our perspective. But Esther does something that's, that's really wise here before, and she does agree to this. And she, she kind of buys into what he's saying, so I'm going to go to the king. But before she does... She calls for a three-day fast and says, I want you to gather all the Jewish people. Join me as I fast. Here's the next thing that, that we can learn from Esther is to seek God before acting. Seek God first. You see, um, having courage doesn't mean being stupid. Sometimes there can be a very fine line between faith and foolishness. We're not talking about just you know, jumping out there into something that, that, that God did not lead to. Now, sometimes following God's direction may look foolish, right, to others. But the key is, is God giving the direction. If, if we're clear that God is directing, then let's go ahead and be foolish. If that's the direction God is leading us to go. There are so many examples throughout Scripture of people who did things that looked incredibly foolish to others around them. But it's what God said to do. We just need to make sure that we're seeking God first and making sure that that is his direction. See, Esther wasn't about to approach the king until she approached God first. She was going to take three days to fast and to pray and to ask other people to pray and intercede on her behalf um, before she went to the king. Sometimes, I, I just speak from personal experience, but sometimes for me, it takes something that is so obviously beyond what I can handle to get me to a point of really seeking God wholeheartedly first. Because my tendency, if it's something simple, is just to take care of it, right? I can handle that. I'll just take care of it on my own. Not a big deal. But if it is a big deal, and I'm like, whoa, this is, you know, this is outside of what I'm able to handle at that point, that forces me to my knees. It forces me to, to seek God and to pray. Um, knowing that, I'm absolutely convinced that God brings things into my life because he knows that I have to have that in order to really um, 
seek him wholeheartedly. And um, so we need to seek him first. You know, before we act, before we step out in faith, we, we need those things that are driving to him. And then one last thing quickly is Esther's response. And I just see so much maturity here in, in the way that she phrases things at the end of verse 16. After she approaches, it says, or after they fast, she, she will approach the king. She says, when I go to the king, even though, then I will go to the king, even though it's against the law. And then she says this, and if I perish, I perish. Here's what that says to me. Trust God with the results. That's what Esther's doing here. This isn't some fatalistic, you know, right? this is truly a way of saying, I'm, we've, we brought it before God, we fasted, we prayed, and if God doesn't intervene, and if I die, then I die. But I'm going to trust God with the results. You remember what happened with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego when they refused also to bow down before the statue? They were thrown into a fiery furnace. But before they were, let me remind you of what they said to the king in Daniel 3, 17 and 18. They said, if we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it. And he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. Listen to verse 18. So good. But even if he does not we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you've set up. See, they had full confidence that God could and would deliver them. But they said, but even if he doesn't, we're not going to back down. In other words, we're going to trust God with the results here. That's what courage is. Courage is, is a willingness to say, God, I'm going to trust you. And you know why we can do that? Because God has shown over and over and over again that he's trustworthy. I've seen that in my own life. I know you've seen that in your life. As we go through the challenges and the very dark periods of life, God continues to be trustworthy. And aside from our own personal experience, what we have that is just ironclad proof of God's trustworthiness is the cross. And God loved us so much that, that he sent his son to the cross for us. Jesus died in your place and in my place because God loves us and God desires a relationship with us. So much so that, that, that he sent his only son to pay the penalty that we owe. That's a God that I can trust. So when those dark times come in my life, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to view the obstacles as an opportunity. I'm going to seek God first before acting in my own ability or my own strength. But more than anything, I'm going to trust him with the results. Let's trust him. Wherever you find yourself and whatever you're going through, God's trustworthy. And that gives us the courage to be able to do whatever it is that he's leading us to do. Let's pray together. Lord, wherever the dark periods may be, whatever people may be going through right now, God, I, I plead with you to give each of us courage. Help us to take steps of faith.
Help us to follow your direction, whatever that looks like. And Lord, may we not back down in any way, but trust you completely. And Lord, step in and provide. Step in and reveal yourself uh, in the midst of these trials, Lord. And we just thank you. Thank you that we can depend on you always. In Jesus' name, amen.